This country's in a weird, feeble, grotesque state, and it's about time it got out of it. And the only the reason it could get out of it is WFMU could rise this country out of its decadent, ambient state more than those crappy people could ever hope to achieve. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it. You're listening to Aerial View on WFMU East Orange and WXHD Mount Hope and worldwide on the internet at WFMU.org. No tricks on Chris. I heard his voice on the tape and it really put the hook in me. I have broadcast many, many times. Shortwave on both the light program and the home school. Yeah, you fight Welcome, everybody, to a, uh, thanks for coming out for another uh, episode of the WFMU Literary Guild reading series. We're here uh, every week, no, um, we're here 
every couple of months. Uh, many thanks to the folks here at KGB and at the Red Room for hosting us. And uh, what you're going to hear are readings by a bunch of WFMU staffers, all uh, DJs you may have heard on the air if you listen to the station. WFMU, just uh, to give the background, is a uh, freeform, independent radio station. We're based in Jersey City, New Jersey. And um, we broadcast extensively online. We also broadcast at 91.1 FM in, in this area. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a weird place. WFMU. <laughs> One of our uh, slogans is that if you hate what you're hearing, tune in again in five minutes and you'll love it and we'll get rid of you again in another five minutes. Uh, it's very, very freeform, incredibly eclectic programming. And uh, I thought it would be fun because a lot of the staff write um, to get people together and it's uh, kind of in the freeform vein. There's a lot of different styles of writing that people will read here. So without further ado then, let me introduce... Um, one of the two most trusted names in sports talk radio today, doing a show called Sportsy Talk on WFMU, which puts the C back in sports. And that's Bronwyn Carlton. Everybody, nice seeing you again. Okay. Uh, thanks for coming out for this. Um, hello. How's that? Is that okay? Is that good? All right. All right. I'm doing it now. The Animal Club. The noises started last winter, just before my birthday. I was 11 then, and Emily was eight. One night it was snowing outside, and it was really cold. And we went to bed, and our dad tucked us in and turned off the light. And then just as I was falling asleep, I heard this weird noise. It sounded like something rolling down across the roof and off the edge of it. I didn't know what it was. And then it did it again. It did it a few times, and then it stopped. The next night, the same thing happened. I asked Emily if she heard it. And at first, she said, heard what? But then it happened again, and she said she heard it too. Some nights it didn't happen at all, but that was just as bad because then I would lie awake anyway waiting for it to start. Finally, one night our dad was still in the room when it happened. I asked him, Dad, what's that noise? And he listened, and then it happened again, and he said it was just ice coming off the roof. But I didn't believe him because I don't think a piece of ice rolls like that. Ice slides and scrapes, but this sounded heavy, and it was rolling. So the next morning I went out behind the house and looked in the snow, and there weren't any holes in the drifts like there would be if something fell off the house. I went back inside, and Mom and Dad were finishing their coffee, and Em was eating her cereal, and I asked Dad to come look at the back of the house before he left for work, because I wanted him to see that nothing had fallen off the roof in the night. He said, why should he come look if there was nothing to see? And then Emily said, Megan thinks it's a ghost, and they all laughed. But up until then, I hadn't thought it was a ghost. Up until then, I didn't know what it was. So it was Emily that put that idea in my mind. She said it herself. That night was when the new noise started. First there was the rolling, and then there was a tapping. The tapping started on the wall above my bed, went tap, 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 straight down to just above my head, and then it stopped. And then it did it again. 
I asked Emily if she heard it, and she did. We listened while it did it a couple of times. It's your ghost, Megs, she said, and she giggled, but I didn't think it was funny. I thought the rolling noise sounded like somebody's head that was cut off, rolling down the roof and off the edge and disappearing before it hit the ground over and over again, and the other noise was because it meant I was going to die. I thought it was really scary, and I didn't see why Emily thought it was so funny. After that, I never slept very well. The noises happened almost every night, and Emily kept teasing me about the ghost, and Dad told me to just ignore it and go to sleep, and Mom said just to listen to Dad. So I decided to do some research. Of the two of us, I've always been the smart one, and Em's always the pretty one. People would see Emily with her long blonde hair and her big green eyes, and it was like they were hypnotized. And they'd see me tall and dark, and it was like I was invisible. Dad was always really nice about it. He would ask me to help him when he worked on his antique cars, and he would try to teach me about trigonometry and electronics and other stuff he thought was interesting. And he would brag about my grades to people. One time there were some grown-ups visiting, and Dad told this one lady that I'd just got straight A's on my report card. And she looked at me, and she looked at Emily, and she said, well, isn't it nice that one got all the beauty and one got all the brains? After she left, Mom made sure to tell Em that she was smart, too. I guess because she didn't want her to feel stupid or bad or anything. But I don't think Em cared. I think she just heard the lady say she was pretty, and she was fine with that. Mom didn't say anything to me, though, but that was probably just because I'm older. So because I'm smart, I know how to go look stuff up at the library. I like to use the library computer because our computer at home is set up so Mom and Dad can see what we look at and what websites we go on. But at the library, they don't care. And I like to take the bus to the main library downtown instead of walking to the branch by our house because that way I won't have to worry about Mrs. Roberts from next door or some kid I know walking up behind me and asking me what I'm looking at. I started researching ghosts. And right away I found out what was making the noises. It was a poltergeist. A poltergeist is a special kind of ghost that makes noises. And it turns out they usually happen in a house with a young girl living there. So somehow they're connected to young girls, and that made sense to me, because why was Emily not scared by all the noises? Because she brought the poltergeist. But when I told Em what I'd found out and asked her to make the poltergeist stop, she just laughed at me some more. Then she told her friends, and they all started teasing me, which I didn't care about, because they're just little kids. But then Em said she would tell Mom and Dad if I didn't stop bugging her about the ghost. She couldn't even say poltergeist right. She just said ghost. But I knew if Emily wasn't going to do anything, then I had to do something to make it stop. So I went back to the library and started looking up how to get rid of poltergeists. And the only thing I could find was about exorcism. There are a lot of scary movies about ghosts and demons and exorcists. Mom and Dad don't let us watch stuff like that. But there are lots of trailers and clips on YouTube. So I watched those at the library, and they were really bad. I was afraid that if Emily kept on with the poltergeist that she would get possessed and then she'd be all ugly and her bed would float in the air and demons would speak through her mouth and even worse stuff than that would happen, things I don't even know about yet. So I figured we should get Emily exercised as soon as possible. But the problem was that it seemed like only Catholics did exorcisms and we're Lutherans. So I decided to do it myself. By then it was spring, and all the snow had melted, but I still heard the rolling noise at night. 
school was out for Easter vacation, and I thought that would be a good time to do the exorcism because Easter is religious. I told Emily we were going to play a game, and I got Mom's Bible, and I took the little cross down off the dining room wall, and I got the emergency candles that we have for when the power goes out, and set them around her bed. I wasn't sure where to get holy water, so I just took some regular water and said a prayer over it, and I hoped that would work okay. I got Em to lie down on her bed, and I was just lighting the first candle, and Mom walked in. That was probably the worst trouble I ever was in. She even called Dad, and he came home from work in the middle of the day. They both yelled at me, and I got grounded for a month, and my computer privileges were suspended. Then Dad started yelling at Mom for letting me watch bad movies, and she said she did not let me watch those things, and they had an awful fight. I couldn't tell if it was just a regular fight or if it was a demon or even the devil making them have a bad fight and was the beginning of all the other bad things that I was pretty sure were going to happen now. I knew I had to do something to make it stop. I thought about it for a long time, and as soon as I wasn't grounded anymore, I went back to the library. But it didn't help much, because everything I read said it was really hard to kill someone. I remembered seeing a big box of rat poison that Mr. Dixon, the custodian, had down in the basement at school, but I also know there are tests that can tell if a person's been poisoned. Besides, Emily is a really picky eater, and she doesn't usually eat anything except grilled cheese sandwiches and milk and cereal. And I didn't want to try to smother her, because what if she woke up and fought me off and then told on me? So now it's summer already, and we're out of school, and Emily's bored. I don't see how anybody can ever be bored. You can always read a book or play video games or sign up for day camp or go hiking and pick wild raspberries in the Hoffman's pasture. But her best friend Amanda is away on vacation in Florida and Em can't think of anything to do on her own. All she does is baby stuff anyway. Yesterday she asked if I wanted to go up in the barn and have a meeting of President Albert Grinlaw's Animal Club with her. That's a game we used to play a lot when I was still little. It's a club of our stuffed animals. President Albert Grenlaw is a stuffed turtle. He was elected president when President Broken Nose, who was a stuffed hippo, got left behind in a motel when we were on vacation at the Grand Canyon. So we would take all the stuffed animals and have animal club meetings with them up in the loft in the barn. The barn is not really a barn. It's more like a gigantic garage. It's really old and ugly, and Mom hates it. But Dad says it's a perfect place for him to work on his antique cars. That's his hobby. He buys old cars and fixes them up and puts them in car shows and then sells them. So most of the barn is full of torn up cars and old car parts and Dad's workbench. But there's a little loft with a wooden ladder that goes up and Em and I used to play up there. So yesterday when she asked if I wanted to play Animal Club, I almost said no. And then I changed my mind and said yes. We took the animals and climbed up and down the ladder until we got them all up there and Em started the meeting. It was dusty up there and pretty hot, so I got up and started to walk around. I looked over the edge of the loft at the way we'd come up, but the floor was clear and I figured it wasn't that far to fall, so it wouldn't be a sure thing. Then I went further back, where it was kind of dark, by the back wall and looked over. And there were all kinds of metal things and tools and the whole frame of a 1929 Chevy truck spread out below. And then I heard a scraping sound. I'd never heard any of those sounds outside of our bedroom at night, and I looked at Emily, but she was having Argus Bonejaw, the other turtle, give a speech, and she didn't even look at me. 
She was pretending she didn't hear it. And then I saw that she was moving her foot and scraping her shoe on the boards and trying not to laugh. So then I knew that it really was too late for her because not only had she brought the poltergeist, but now she was starting to do what it wanted to scare me. I kind of hissed her name at her like I was trying to whisper but still wanted her to hear it. She looked up. Look, I said, and then turned and peered over the edge of the loft. What is it? She whispered back, all excited. Is it a raccoon? I turned back to her and tried to look all excited, too. It's baby raccoons, I said, three of them. She scuttled over on her hands and knees as fast and as quietly as she could and looked over the edge into the dark. I don't see anything, she said out loud, disappointed. Shh, I said. They're underneath. You can't see them from here. You have to stand up and bend way over. And she did, and I pushed her, and she hit the frame of the truck, and her head hit some of the other stuff. I climbed down the ladder and went over and looked at her to make sure she wasn't breathing, because if they start your breathing again after you stop, you can have brain damage. At first, I thought maybe she was breathing, and then I decided it was my imagination. So then I got myself all worked up and upset looking, and I ran for the house yelling for Mom to tell her Emily had an accident. Mom ran out to the barn, and then she started screaming and screaming, and I thought she'd never stop. Mrs. Roberts called the police and the fire department, and they all came, and my dad came, and Dr. Krumenacher came. They took Emily away in an ambulance, and Dr. Krumenacher gave Mom a shot, and they take her to the hospital in a different ambulance. Dad went to the hospital, and Mrs. Roberts came over to watch me and give me dinner. The police came back, but Mrs. Roberts told them they should wait and talk to me tomorrow. I don't remember what else Mrs. Roberts said, except after dinner she told me I should stop biting the split ends off my hair. Finally, Dad came home and said Mom would be home in the morning, and Mrs. Roberts talked to him for a little bit real quiet so I couldn't hear them. And then I went to bed, and then I heard Dad going to bed. And then I heard the rolling noise and the tapping noise. And then there was a new noise, slam, slam, slam! And the furnace that's in the basement right below our bedroom sounded like it was going to blow up. Dad came charging and yelling, Megan, knock it off! And I yelled back, I'm not doing anything! And that was when I figured it out. It wasn't Emily who brought the poltergeist. It was me. them from here so that's I know nice. that's kind of weird I like that Hello. no I like it it's like it reminds me of radio it is like radio yay <laughs> yay hello listeners um this story this is a fictional story it's called enjoy yourself <clears throat> Mark was taking a photo that was his job he was a stock photographer 
Recently, a picture he took appeared on a cup of strawberry-flavored yogurt. The celebrity of the strawberry was impressive. It made me think that I might be surrounded by photos that Mark took at all times. I, I only know about the strawberry for sure because his sister Vanilla was using it as the background on her phone. But I digress. I was standing with Mark, who was taking a photo with his phone of himself in front of an ice sculpture in Madison Square Park. I wasn't going to be in this picture, which was something I did not have mixed feelings about. I did not want to be in a picture of Mark. I wouldn't even normally be in his company, but we ran into him on the sidewalk. Mark and I were waiting for Vanilla to come out of the Lego store where she was buying a birthday present for her co-worker's four-year-old. I hated Mark, but maybe I hated the Lego store more because I wasn't going in there. Mark began texting the image of himself to several people. I walked around the block, which was a long block, and then when I got back to the other side, I saw Mark and Vanilla with a plastic shopping bag in her hand talking. Then Mark walked away and didn't look both ways before he crossed the street. Vanilla and I spent the rest of the day laughing because she is my new best friend. I've only met three best friends in 24 years, so I have to tolerate her ugly person inside brother, who always coincidentally showed up wherever we were going. I met Vanilla two months ago at the bank, where I have never met anyone before. She couldn't get the door open with her debit card, so I let her in with mine. She had cool nails that were two shades of blue with a glittery stripe across the middle. After she used the the ATM, she abruptly started making a gasping noise and threw up a fairly clear, meager puddle of water. I immediately got very nervous, but also concerned. Thank God. Concern meant I cared for people outside myself, which gave me some confidence since my goodness as a person was confirmed. I whirled around and saw Vanilla apologizing and wiping her mouth. Honestly, the bank lobby wasn't any dirtier than it was when we entered. She made a funny face and then started laughing. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I drank too much last night and I didn't eat anything today. Haha, <laughs> sorry. So embarrassing. After that, we went to get a bagel and Vanilla talked a lot. While she was talking, I thought the best thing that can happen to a person is an interaction with another person. Behind our table, a British woman was talking to the person sitting across from her about attachment styles. I had a random flashback to a vegetarian restaurant in LA. Then I asked Vanilla for her phone number, which is an antiquated way of telling someone that you like them. It worked. We were friends ever since. The Thursday after we went to the Lego store, Vanilla and I went out to lunch because neither of us had to work. She started telling me a story. Last night I went to this guy's place. I've known him for a long time. He's pretty dumb, but he's still sexy. You know he has that street cred sexy look? He's from Queens and he has the sexiest Queens accent, you know? As Vanilla kept explaining and remembering, I noticed thousands of people meandering aimlessly outside the window behind her. Somehow I didn't see them assembling. Once I acknowledged them, I kept getting hooked on aspects of the members of the crowd. Interesting clothing, beautiful faces, bad hair. And then I realized so many of the drifters looked vaguely familiar. I started to feel very bad. Vanilla speaking went in and out of focus. It sounded like she was describing abusive ex-boyfriends. Then I spotted someone I could clearly identify. I was finally relieved by the security of a fact, even if that fact was Mark. I stared him down. He had a clunky smirk that was supposed to be suave, but oddly betrayed only fear and insecurity. He dressed in new clothes and wore a black baseball cap with the word dread embroidered on it in the front in thick tubes of shimmering white thread. 
He had a skateboard under his right arm. Vanilla, here comes your brother, I said. The last part of the sentence was dry. She didn't brighten or darken, but simply turned back towards him, not, though not as though she was expecting him. He came straight into the restaurant and stopped in front of our table. Hey, La, I'm leaving for SF tomorrow, and I need you to do me a favor. Can you drive my car to Dad's? He really needs it, and he won't leave me alone. But I just don't have the fucking time to get it to him before I leave. Can you drive it since it's your day off? Thanks. Sorry. He tossed a set of keys with a scratched-up Disneyland keychain on the table, making a violent, high-pitched sound. Vanilla narrowed her eyes and said, Fuck you, Mark. It's not like I have my own life. Jesus, I don't have time with for this. But Dread was gone. It was just me and Vanilla. Can I come with you? Vanilla looked at me. She sighed, then looked to her right and thought, and then said, please, would you? Jesus, fucking Mark. My dad lives in rural Pennsylvania. It doesn't take that long to get there. It's just we have to take this shit bus to get back in the city. Oh, I hate doing it. Fuck Mark. Anyway, if you come with me, it won't be so bad. But you're going to be seriously bored. We have to leave, like, right now, though, if we want to get the last bus. I thought it was kind of funny to rush to a place that would only take us back to your current location. We were already moving fast enough by not moving to have already accomplished that what we were rushing to do. Vanilla and I took the subway to her brother's house, a luxury apartment in a terrible neighborhood. We took his black VW sedan covered in girl skateboard stickers and drove it for three hours into Pennsylvania. It smelled like Fruit Loops and hair. I drove more than half the way there even though I didn't know where I was going. Vanilla talked a lot. Whatever she was talking about seemed extremely interesting. I love stories about peop other people's lives. So my roommate, she said, he just did this amazing thing. So he was driving down the Belt Parkway, and he spotted this tiny puppy on his shoulder. It seemed really worse for wear. And how does a puppy get on the Belt par Parkway anyway? So Henry, my roommate, oh, I wanted to listen to Vanilla so much. I really wanted to know what was going to happen to the puppy in the story, but I couldn't focus. We were in an enormous traffic jam. Cars lined up on either side of us. I heard Vanilla's voice, but there were hundreds of insects in the car, all different kinds. I was trying not to look at them, but there were so many in all kinds of fascinating colors, and they were all making short, beautiful noises. Some of them landed on my hands, and others just flew away and seemed to disappear into crevices only tiny things go to. I thought this was a little dangerous, to be so distracted while I was driving, so I opened the windows by pressing a button inside the car door. The bugs seemed to mostly escape. I closed the windows. It was starting to get cold and dark outside. Vanilla came back into focus. I realized my voice was auto-replying, yeah, really? Oh, and oh my god, whenever I sensed the end of a sentence. I wished I had heard the story. Then Vanilla said, oh shit, it's getting kind of late. Um... And then she got really quiet. I glanced over and saw, her, saw she was fixated on the digital clock lodged into the car's dashboard. Do you want to drive, I asked? Would you feel better if you were in control? She paused for a breath and made the sound and, and grew it into, yeah, I can drive. I pulled over at a Sunoco. It was black and frigid outside. The weather was accessorizing with an icy wind that blew every 20 seconds or so. The stinging white lights of a gas station reminded Vanilla of a time when she was at this very rest stop and she was 15 and she was with two of her friends and one of them was who was her boyfriend at the time, bought this disgusting looking saran wrap seafood salad sandwich and her other friend and Vanilla made fun of him and they bought ice cream and gum and laughed at the weird packaged food. I liked this story. 
Americans can relate to this story, I thought. Vanilla got into the front seat, and I settled into shotgun. Her motions were stifled by the clock again. Her eyes froze, but she withheld any emotion. This only lasted less than a minute. She drove us all the way to her dad's house, which took another 40 minutes. I guess I had taken a few wrong turns since I was just using my intuition as a compass. Finally, we arrived at a featureless one-story home in a field. It was too dark to see anything, but there was a bright outdoor light shining from the back of the house into the gravel driveway, a repeat of the lights at the Sunoco. After we pulled up and stopped the car, Vanilla sighed. What's up, I said. It's too late. We missed the bus. Pause. I don't want you to go into my dad's house. He's a really creepy guy, and honestly, I try to stay away from him. He's not safe. He's a perverted old man. I got out of the car. It was really chilly. The field was very flat, which seems strange for Pennsylvania. There was almost no trees except for in the distance. There was one white plastic deck chair lying on its side in front of the house like a guard dog. It could have been a symbol of poverty, loneliness, or the whiteness of the plastic could be referring to virginity, but that seemed <laughs> unlikely. I looked out over the black and gray landscape, only the oblong of the house of a perverted man sticking out of it. It would have been beautiful otherwise, I think. But in such an expanse of nothingness, does perversion really have that much of an impact? A low-populated area is a great place for an extremist to live because their human extremism is dwarfed by the enormity of the rest of nature. I started to walk back to the car that Vanilla was still warming in. When I reached for the passenger door, I looked up at the sound of Nikes on gravel. There was a person coming in from behind the house. They looked surprisingly young to be the father of two people in their mid to late 20s. I stood there with the car door half open and I heard Vanilla say, hey! The person looked like they were wearing a black baseball cap with white letters embroidered on it. It was Mark. He was wearing a shirt that said catatonic in the same font as the Panasonic logo. Yeah. Vanilla was out of the car. Mark, she screamed, what the hell are you doing here? What the fuck? I thought you were going to San Francisco tomorrow. She said some more things that were related to being shocked. Mark was doing that unsexy smirk thing. He did not have a skateboard on him. It was just me, Vanilla, and Mark. No swarms, herds, crowds, or traffic. My focus was extremely sharp. I started to feel a shivering in my nerves, starting at the back of my neck. I felt very, very bad. The muscles in my head and stomach seized. I put my right hand to my forehead. I thought I might double over. I felt willing to do anything to get out of this situation. I wanted to hurt myself so my brain could be distracted by a simple, comprehensible exigency. Then I realized I should look at Vanilla. She has known Mark all her life. However she was reacting was probably wise to follow. Mark was not saying anything, but his presence was like someone screaming. Vanilla sighed in anger and got back in the car. I got back in the car, too. We just drove back to New York City. She didn't say anything, but I felt extremely safe, and I promised myself in the future I would work harder to focus while she was talking, no matter what else was going on.
Congressman. I'm feeling the need to use a demonstrative exhibit. So this this uh, is a family portrait of my family, taken in 1987, I'm guessing. There's the little Olin Mills logo at the corner. Um, this is me here. Here is my older brother, Mark, my sister, Sarah, my youngest sister, Christine. There's my mom. She was at Woodstock. There's my father, who spent the uh, summer of love in San Francisco. When I, uh, when I obtained this photo that my parents were going to get rid of, uh, they just moved from the house that I grew up in. And moved away and got rid of tons of stuff, so I went in part to gather things. Um, my children referred to this as Evil Dan. <laughs> and were really upset at first when I hung it on the wall in the house. My daughter made the comment that she wasn't sure that she would be able to go to sleep anymore. <laughs> she, she's six. And um, on Facebook, there was a comment about Mark saying, Flock of Seagulls. And I said, no, Cabaret Voltaire. And he said, exactly. So I'll just leave that there. Uh, when I was, so um, I guess I'm about 16 in that. When I was about 15, I um, had started to write poetry, sort of uh, with some seriousness, I guess. And a poet named Maurice Kenny, who's a, uh, lived for many years here in, in New York City, um, had kind of a long career here, retired to teach in the community college in Saranac Lake, my hometown, up in the Adirondack Mountains, um, at Lorraine County Community College. And I took classes with him uh, while I was in high school, night classes. He taught night verse writing classes. And recently I wrote a, uh, I was writing about some old poems that I wrote way back when, but uh, couldn't really remember, couldn't, didn't have copies of. And there's uh, one, that involves Maurice and an episode in his class when I was a uh, maybe a junior, beginning my junior year in high school. So I would have been 14, I think, maybe 15. Um, so I'll just I'll tell the story rather than read this little excerpt. But um, Maurice, you have to picture him. He's about this t somewhere around. He's really short and uh, balding, white hair with a ponytail and a rather large bulbous nose, a huge ego, because he's actually a quite successful poet who now makes his living doing readings. So he's, um, you know, just a massive ego. And uh, also has this uh, kind of rage inside, which may be part of the connection. The reason that 30 years later, I'm able to talk with him about this, this incident still. So I wrote a poem, and I you know, couldn't remember what the content of the poem was at all, except that it had, you know, I, was, I had been reading a lot of uh, E.E. E. Cummings, and that's a dangerous thing for a teenager. And there was, a, the poem ended with a phrase that had an, a parenthesis that started the phrase, but then at the end there was no parenthesis. You know? That's clever, right? It was, it was, it was really clever. 
well, I mean, come on, you have to admit that this was clever. <laughs> but Maurice asked, where's the parenthesis at the end? After I read it in class, this is a, uh, a evening class, a lot of continuing ed folks, you know, just like humble folks from, you know, from the mountains, uh, as well as a few matriculated <laughs> students at a junior college. Hey, I grew up in the mountains. And um, most of the, a lot of them felt kind of motherly to me, I think, because I was this little tiny skidgy kid. And um, Maurice became sort of, he really honed in on this missing parenthesis. So it was, well, where's the missing, you know, where, why don't you put the parenthesis at the end? You have a typo. No, it's not a typo, it's in purpose. Well, why don't you take out the one at the beginning then? You know, if you don't want to put one in at the end, take out one at the beginning. It's wrong. No, it's not wrong. It's for the reader to figure out. You know, some whatever. I said some smarmy stuff. I was pretty snide too at the time, so it would have been really like really obnoxious. And um, he came and got closer and closer to the desk. Take out the parenthesis. No, take out the parenthesis. And all the warmth is leaving the room, and all the other students are sitting as still as possible. And I'm sitting at a desk just going, no. And it ended with him at the desk. You know, his rage sort of slowly grew until his face was bright red. And he was pounding on my desk with his fist. And his face was an inch or so from mine. There's spit everywhere. And he's saying, take out the parenthesis! We still uh, talk about this. We're still quite good friends. While I was cleaning up my parents' house, um, unfortunately, I found a big parcel of, um, of old collections of poetry from that time. Uh, poems that I had written about being lost in this essay. This is called Trackless Snow. Uh, an anthology of poetry by the students of the 1986 Creative Poetry Writing Classes of North Country Community College. One of those was me. Um, I, my name is signed there. It's D-A-N-N -N Boda. Take out the N! I had recently rejected the um, name Danny. I, I was on a campaign that no adults should call me Danny anymore. And look, there's a poem in this with no ending parenthesis. I'll read it to you. One si All right, I am going to read this. I am brave enough to read this. One single brilliance in the lap of death, or the sun shines in fall. Maybe if I could convince you of nothing or show you that I'm no one, if I could by chance reveal to you the craving mind of the martyr, if you for a moment could see me as I was or love me, then perhaps our innocent wisdom could instruct you. I'm unadorned. Could you love me? <laughs> that applause may have actually saved me from some serious emotional trauma tonight. <laughs> There were more, and I'm going to read a couple. Somebody tell me if I'm getting too long here. I, I really don't want to go on too long. Um, 
I'll read this one. Mud covered from flitting under back fences. Your emotions cry for expression within the dull void of your apathy. Did that last backstab leave a nasty blood stain on your favorite persona? You'll always worry, but you counted that cost. Be sure not to rope burn your hands when you hang your one true lover. That would only be sloppiness. Clean breaks are your style. Digging others' graves gets dirt on your clothing. Always cover your back. Do unto others what will benefit you. There was another little, Maurice would always have, you know, little anthologies of the work from the class put together. This is a little, little one called Waiting for My Turn. Poems by students of the verse writing classes of North Country Community College, spring 1988. There's the rusty mark of a paper clip on it. Um, I have a contribution here. Have another day. I'm stuck in my house. It's one of those gray days when it's bright enough that you can't turn the lights on inside, but drab enough that you want to. I'm stuck in my house. It's one of those gray days. So I'm looking out my window at the cars pass, misted by, the cars rain by. I turn the light on. I turn the light off. The cars splash by watery. The cars pass by misted. So I'm looking in the knife drawer, I'm searching through the knife drawer, and I can't decide now whether to stay inside or go out. <laughs> and since everybody seems to like it when I scream, I'll uh, end with another one that involves that. It was snowing. I walked alongside myself, mumbling to my audience myself like this, and I sang and glanced across the lake searching for I know what, but I have no idea of something inside screams, it's over! <laughs> I know. Uh, next up will be Cheyenne Homan, I believe reading a poem of uh, Ivan uh, Simchak's, who couldn't be here tonight due to illness, which is a really sad thing. But she sent a poem along to, uh, to Cheyenne to read on her behalf. So I think that's great. And I apologize, this was very last minute and I did not bring my blonde wig, so <laughs> pretend I'm Yvonne. This is a very quick one. It is called, This is Not a Business Card. And I will tell you, this was sent to me as a photograph, so please bear with me. <laughs> she sent you a photo She sent me a photograph of her poem on, the phone. on my phone as I was coming to read, okay. so... This is not a business card. It is called. <laughs> this is the opposite. It bears no name, no business. Consider this, oppose it. I have no pitch, no reason, just existence. Same as you. <laughs> yeah. I have a Dean with me, if I could read a quick, okay. And 
since I thought I might be on stage, I brought a very quick thing. Um, this is called an ode to the street viper. It's from Neckmonster 9, a zine that I've been doing for many years. On the way to critical mass at Tyler Park, I sailed down the street. My new bike was awesome. I had been riding a bike that was too heavy and short for months. But when its frame broke and had to be welded back together, I got the feeling it was time for a new ride. My friend helped me build it, and in fact, did most of the work. It was an emerald green Raleigh Grand Prix with the lightest steel frame I had ever encountered. Smooth action the whole way. It was a dream boat. I named it the Street Viper. And I rode it along, planning my stops, as the brakes were still in need of some work. <laughs> as I turned down the shade-dappled road that runs along Tyler Park's sloping hillside, a car was zooming uphill, and I was zooming downhill. I slammed on my crappy brakes and, at an embarrassingly slow velocity, crumpled into the front bumper of a shiny silver BMW. A confused old man was driving, and as soon as it was realized that I was able to walk away from the scene with a busted bike and a wobbly knee, he drove off, car intact. My bike didn't fare as well. The frame had bent in on itself, which made it impossible to turn and dangerous to ride, not to mention unfixable. I ended up getting a ride home from a nice lady and cried, not because I was hurt, but because the most awesome bike I had ever owned was taken away from me so early. I still regret not getting that guy's information <laughs> because my knee continued to give me trouble and the Street Viper's frame was ruined on impact. I probably could have had him at least pay for a new bike or for nicer parts or another frame. I had to strip the components off the Street Viper and put them on another frame, which is heavier and still needs some work. I've made it my own though. It's now partially hot pink with yellow handlebar tape and hopefully will be a single speed soon. I'm learning to love it but it's the kind of relationship that takes a lot of manual labor on my part, and I've always been kind of bad at those. I would like to welcome Chris M. to the stage. Oh, hey, everybody. Hey, Chris. Hey. Oh, hey. Nice to be back. Uh, hey, I, uh, I'm, my name is Chris M. I do a, a show on Thursday mornings now, 9 a.m. to noon on WFMU. And uh, no, that's a no. Hold your applause, please. No. <laughs> so, um, I'm not. I'm not a real writer, but I do professionally write for the New Yorker. I do. Uh, I do, uh, I, I write movie reviews for the New Yorker. It's in very small print, so that's why you may have not noticed that, I, but I write them. Yeah. So I, I'd just like to quickly read uh, some of my movie reviews that were published in the New Yorker, the magazine. I wanted to start with a joke, but I couldn't think of one, so. I'm just gonna get right into it. <laughs> okay, have you have you all seen Everest, the new movie Everest? No, right? Uh, Everest just came out this year. It's a documentary. My rating of it was two stars out of five. It's uh, 
This was my review of Everest. These climbers are all pussies. <laughs> Brian Blessed was 96 years old when he climbed the entire mountain wearing nothing but his BVDs and carrying no equipment except a grapefruit spoon. <laughs> he also drove a flagpole into the top of the summit with his penis and flew the Union Jack while reciting all of Othello for hours while at the same time running in circles. He personally slew 13 Sherpas who were too pussified to climb all the way up and then he used their fucking bones to build a sled for a baby that he delivered there. He, he kicked a hole into, the, into solid rock to gain a foothold on a sheer cliff and then clapped once so hard that he set off an avalanche that was so massive, people had to ski in the town below for three years just to buy their fucking groceries. <laughs> this is why Brian Blessed is a real hero, and they should make, uh, remake this movie with him and me climbing up Everest again. <laughs> Except this time, they should add in the scene where I make Kira Knightley pregnant just by looking kissingly into her eyes. Because that would add authenticity to the true life events which I have just described. <laughs> Uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Three stars. Everything transformed into a gun in this movie. Rubber mask gun, roll of nickels gun, Cuevos Rancheros gun, ordinary pencil gun, rolling rock 25 ounce can gun, gun gun, spaghetti carbonara gun, even Alec Baldwin transformed right into a gun. Um... Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Two and a half stars. This is everything that I remember from the Terminator movies. Terminator, you had the robot head covered in Play-Doh. Terminator 2, I'll come back, baby. Terminator 3, inflatable boobs. And then, to, to continue with the Terminator movies, Terminator Salvation, I give it two stars. I can understand why Christian Bale was famously so testy during the shooting of this production, since he had to actually leap out of a plane and dive into the ocean, landing inside a submarine. I'm not sure how this death-defying stunt was captured, but just as Bale was about to jump, some amateur crew member walked right into the scene, knocking over lighting equipment and stepping on his foot. Despite these seemingly impossible odds, Bale managed to turn the acting turn in the acting performance of a lifetime, and that is why Terminator Salvation swept the Oscars, winning 14 Academy Awards. And to conclude the Terminator movies, Terminator Genesis 2015, two stars. It's time to go back to the future, calories. That's a quote from Arnold Terminator. Oh, hi. Uh, have you all seen The Duchess? No. This is my review of The Duchess. Two stars, 2008, is a period piece. While I was watching this movie, I was eating a slice of chicken parmesan pizza. A piece of chicken rolled off and hit the crotch of my jeans and then landed on the floor. It's a common problem when one is eating leftover pizza out of aluminum foil. There wasn't much sauce on my crotch, but there was a substantial amount on the floor. I cleaned up the sauce with an old t-shirt. 
My jeans still have soft spots on the crotch. Just, just movie reviews that have been published in the New Yorker. Thank you. There's a the movie called The Raid from uh, 2011. It's an action movie with lots of fighting, and uh, it's, I gave it three and a half stars. And my review is. The weirdest part was when the two dudes fell into the bathtub together and splashed each other with soap suds so that they were both blinded, and then one of them forced a loofah into the other guy's nostril and he died that way. <laughs> World War Z, starring Brad Pitt. World War Z, starring Brad, uh, Brangelina. One and a half stars. So sexy, wow. These zombies are H.O.T. World War Z, more like World War XXX. <laughs> this is my review of Jabber, Jabberwocky from 1977. Two and a half stars. I feel like some of this was in another language and it should have, it should have had subtitles. Like, what is a frumious bandersnatch? Some sort of cheese? Uh, I think it's French. And if I had known this would be a foreign film, I never would have watched it. To prove my point, I did not wind the, uh, rewind the video before I broadened it back to Blockbuster. <laughs> um, yeah, Blade 2. <laughs> this holiday season, your bite-sized friends, the Gremlins, are back, and they're cuter than ever. Join Gizmo and the gang as they get into all kinds of mischievous and hilarious adventures. There are just three rules to remember. No bright lights, never get them wet, and never ever feed them after midnight. Watch Blade 2, the final gremlin. <laughs> Alright, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't watch this movie, but uh, I was just guessing what it was like based on what my friend Doug told me. Uh, but he did seem to like it. Published in the New Yorker. Barbarella, 1968. I gave it three and a half stars. It's 1968, and you're masturbating by a lava lamp to Jane Fonda and Barbarella. Hot bod, but will she have to encounter the orgasmatron? Well, thank God she does have to. <laughs> you know, you know. Okay. Uh, Outrage, a, a Japanese movie about uh, the Yakuza in Japan. I could strongly, oh, let me start over. Outrage, a Japanese movie about the Yakuza in Japan. Two stars. I could strongly relate to this movie because when I was a Yakuza, I was punished many times and I lost quite a few fingers. I lost a finger for each of the following reasons. I got into a fight with a Nippon TV producer and lost. I won an unflattering dress at a drug deal. I didn't have enough. Uh, I didn't have the same favorite idol as my senior. I sneezed into the underboss's miso soup, even though he said it tasted better with my sneezing. <laughs> I failed to name all the members of SMAP. I was unable to balance an egg on a slotted spoon held in my mouth. I forgot I was the bokeh in the man's eye. Yeah, I said my favorite. I said my favorite Sapporo ramen was chicken, even though it's really original flavor. I dropped my wig in public. I used a poor knife technique while cutting a guy's face. I came too early. I jumped out of the wrong cake. I pulled a gun on Kenny Rogers. I put wasabi on my boss's toothpaste tube. I was too polite. 
I ordered a, uh, I was ordered to guard a parked car for six hours, but I only stood there for three minutes before getting too bored and wandering off. Um, I misjudged a talent competition. I burned down a bonsai tree. I had a street narrowed. I whispered too strongly. And I wore white Labor Day after Labor Day for a second year in a row. And uh, having gotten one finger chopped off for each of these times, I have uh, only three fingers left, but I've really learned my lesson, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> and I'd just like to uh, finish my movie reviews with Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. <laughs> one star. You know what they say. Predators are from Mars, and aliens are from Venus. In case you have trouble telling them apart, racist, remember the following facts. First of all, aliens have double mouths for really great French kissing, while predators have worse vision power to make it harder for them to see. Uh, aliens impregnate human mouths with their crab babies to make their real babies in there, whereas predators call you on the phone late at night and breathe heavily. <laughs> aliens, thank you. Aliens have weird names like Brian Bikini, Rhonda Edwards, and Colonel Night Switch. But on the other hand, predators like to imitate anyone who drops the F-bomb. You know. Uh, finally, Aliens have corrosive acid blood, and predators have faces that look like vaginas with crab legs sticking out of them. <laughs> Hope this handy guide helps you find out about this great new movie that blends violence, babies, seafood, and mouths. <laughs> uh, if I could just, yeah, just one more. Uh, yeah, just for one. Uh, I'd like to just uh, read this poem that I, that I just wrote on the way over here. It's, uh, you all deserve a round of applause, really. Okay. Yeah, this is, my, uh, this is a new poem that I wrote myself uh, on the way over. I'm not decided on the, on the title, but if I could just conclude on this. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. And when she gets there, she knows if the stores are all closed. Yeah, we do have a time limit for each of the years. And you're reading... Why well, is it? It's just one... It's just real quick. You didn't write this on the way over, though. No, I just wrote... Stairway to heaven. Oh, yeah, well, that's... Well, it's a Led Zeppelin song. It's not, it's not your fault. We'll see about that. And I'm going to give you another couple lines, but... With a word? Thank you, Dan. Dan Boda, everybody. Wow, what a great... Well, let's please, let's just get into the spirit of what I'm saying. I, I don't really want to make a big deal out of it. But it just one second. What? I think everyone wants to hear the rest of the poem. Where are you going with this? With the word, she can get what she came for. Oh, and she's buying the stairway. No, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not done yet. We're, I've got, I've got about, it's like another nine minutes. <laughs> it's my poem, Dan. It's, it's not your poem at all. Okay, okay. It's not even remotely your poem. Get the hell off the stage.
excited for the next one. That's it. Chris and everybody. Uh, who will be next? Let's see. I want to introduce somebody who really shouldn't need much introduction for the uh, to the begin in the second half. This is Chris T, the man who uh, brought talk radio to WFMU. One of the greats. Uh, let's hear it for Dan Boda, who uh, brought this whole thing into existence. Thank you, Dan. If not for you, as a very famous lyric goes. Um, I first showed up at WFMU on July 4th, 1986. So next year will be 30 years down there. And uh, the first thing I want to do is thank all of you for being listeners and for being supporters and for being here tonight with so many entertainment choices, including Rocket from the Tombs at our very own Monty Hall and the Brill Building uh, at Loser's Lounge tonight with our own Dave Amel. So thanks for coming out to KGB Bar. We do appreciate it. Um, this is a piece that actually appeared on a website called theweeklings.com. They published it not too long ago. I wrote it initially for Aerial View, which is off the air right now due to my uh, foot surgery but is uh, existing as a podcast at aerialview.me. And I love doing a podcast because I can say fuck and shit and cocksucker and motherfucker. So I'm really enjoying that. Not that that's all I want to do is curse. But there will be some curses in this piece. It's called The Other Chris. And uh, pardon me for sitting down, but uh, I don't think I could stand for the uh, amount of time it's going to take to read this. So thanks for indulging me. Uh, there's a cable channel showing Partridge Family reruns between ads for incontinence products and life insurance. The tale of the widow Shirley Partridge, her five kids, and their musical career plays out to a horribly canned laugh track. I am pulled back through the years trying to remember what I was like when the show first went on the air. September 25th, 1970, a mere 20 days after my eighth birthday. Part of a Friday night ABC lineup that included Nanny and the Professor and the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family quickly became my favorite show. I'd sneak down to the basement with something to eat and a drink, hoping my actual family wouldn't join me so I could pretend I was a groovy, sun-dappled partridge in this mythical land of California. It wasn't hard to imagine. The youngest partridge was around my age and named Chris. Wow, that's my name. Played by young Jeremy Geldwax, who looked like a chimpanzee, Chris could always be counted on for some off-kilter remark, but Jeremy Gelbwax was not the breakout star of the Partridge family. That would be Danny Bonaducci, a man we're still dealing with to this day. <laughs> I wanted to be Danny because he was a smart ass and always got off a good line, and I wanted to be a Partridge because, unlike the antiseptic Brady Bunch, they'd snipe at each other, they were sarcastic, they'd argue and fight. Then they'd all burst into a catchy song written by Wes Farrell and some of our finest pop songwriters of the 70s, like Jerry Goffin, Bobby Hart, Tony, Romeo, Paul Anka, and even Micah Pell. The eight-year-old me heard, I think I love you, and thought, that's a catchy number. That's how you can tell if it's a catchy song, if eight-year-olds like it. I didn't know how phony it all was. I thought David Partridge wrote all these songs and his family performed them. I watch it now and think, how could I have been so naive? First, they're not really a family. Well, Shirley Jones is David Cassidy's stepmom, but that's it. 
they're not singing except for Shirley Jones and David Cassidy. That's it. They're not playing except for David Cassidy. It's not the Cow Sills. A bunch of studio musicians nicknamed the Wrecking Crew provided the music. It's phony baloney Hollywood time. But as I sat there in my darkened basement, peanut butter and jelly sandwich in one grubby little fist and 12 ounces of Nestle's Quick in the other, I'd think, that's what I want. I want to go out across the country in a bus with my family and play at these weird little nightclubs where everyone sits at long tables. I want us to be a family that fights and argues but still loves each other. When the Partridge family went off the air, the end was just beginning for my family. My parents fought constantly. My father was usually not home. My brothers and sisters and I were always at each other's throat. And the only musical instrument in our house was a harmony guitar my sister's friend Rodney left behind, which replaced the baby grand piano we had around since before I was born, just as the Partridge family replaced the original Chris with another. When the show returned to the schedule in 1971, there was a different Chris behind the drums, played by a non-Simeon-looking kid named Brian Forster. Perhaps they took Jeremy Gelbwax aside and said, you look like a chimpanzee and we're getting rid of you. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. It turns out Dad Gelbwax took a job on the East Coast and moved the whole family there. According to Partridge Family creator Bernard Slade, ABC received, quote, not a single complaint about the switch, unquote. <laughs> Apparently no one noticed, but I did. I continue watching the show, but I found it impossible to see other Chris without thinking, wow, you can be replaced just like that. And then it happened to me. The Partridge family had been gone for three years. I'd taken up guitar when the show went off the air in 1974, and two years later was playing rock and roll covers in a band I dubbed Cobra, formed by my friend Billy and me. From Steve Miller to the Rolling Stones to Bad Company, we mastered the mid-tempo rocker. On my white Ibanez Les Paul copy through my Univox amp, I put out quite a racket, playing rhythm and lead. It was the only thing I felt proud of. Pride goeth before a fall. Cue Chris Anderson, the other Chris. My brother Mark brought him in. I'm not sure how they met. It couldn't have been school. Chris Anderson was a dropout. My brother was headed that way, but he was still in school. Maybe they met at a party on Gilgo Beach. They were both in the boats, as were most of the people I knew growing up on the south shore of Long Island. The Great South Bay was a few blocks from us, but I had little to no interest in anything involving water. You could drown there. My brother and other Chris probably started talking about propellers or bilge pumps or cavitation plates, and before long, they're hanging out, drinking beer and ogling girls. Then the party moves to our house, where Chris Anderson can be found every day. I dimly recall something about his parents throwing him out. I think he was smoking pot and drinking. Mark somehow convinced my mother to let him move into the storage shed my father built in our backyard. When I say shed, please don't picture one of those tiny prefab structures for sale at the Home Depot. This was a two-story wood frame building with a foundation. It had no heat or running water, but my father did wire it up with electricity. Downstairs held the lawnmower and all the other implements needed to maintain a suburban home. Upstairs was a big empty room that had been carpeted and paneled. I'm not sure what it was intended for, but once my parents got divorced and my father moved out, my oldest sister, Diana, moved in with her boyfriend, Keith. They lived there for a few years, then got an apartment in town. Then Mark took it over. My mother had gotten a job, but she made a few extra bucks charging her children rent to live at home. If you're 18, you could pay rent or you can leave. 
She did the same with Chris Anderson, though I have no idea if he was 18. He looked 35, tall, sinewy, very tan, with a bulbous nose, page boy haircut, and bad acne scars. He looked like the love child of Carl Malden and Mowgli from The Jungle Book. And like Mowgli, he went shirtless most of the time, which was a reproach to the overweight me. The worst part of having other Chris around, of course, was that I lost exclusive rights to my very own name. From the moment he moved in, whenever anybody else would say, Chris, I'd have to ask, which one? In my own house, with my own family. My mother would call, Chris! And my response wasn't, what? It was, which one? Only to hear, not you, other Chris. <laughs> my mother and other Chris became fast friends. She'd come home from work and he'd mix her up a screwdriver or a vodka tonic and bring it to her in the living room. I'm sure he was mixing one up for himself too. He seemed to be drunk more nights than not. They'd joke and laugh, and I'd wonder to myself, does she actually prefer this guy to me? I don't know where other Chris came from, but his people must have hunted their food because he was always killing something. He'd go fishing and come back with a half a dozen or more flounder. From our back window, he'd fire his Benjamin air rifle into the trees by the barn, and out would drop a pigeon. I found one once in our freezer wrapped in aluminum foil. I don't know what I thought I was looking for, but in the freezer I found squab. The next day, Chris Anderson cleaned the bird, dressed it, and fried the meat in a pan. There wasn't much meat. Fuck you, you whale. Who said you could speak to me like that? Why? What are you going to do about it, whale? I looked to my brother Mark. He walked away. Other Chris stood there and asked, now what? Now what indeed? I didn't know how it came to this. I didn't know how it happened that I was about to fight other Chris, but it seemed I had to. I couldn't back down now. Why did we hate each other so much? It started out okay. He'd stay out in the barn, only come in to use the bathroom or the kitchen, but then he would hang out in the basement, which is where I'd taken to sleeping and satisfying certain urges. You know which urges, like the ones I felt when I'd see Shirley Jones's cleavage. Chris Anderson was thwarting my urges and their satisfaction. And my mother clearly favored him. She was always laughing when she spoke with him. Me, not so much. The last straw was the name calling. Whale, fat boy, blimp, and so many more. It led us to this, the other Chris and I, standing at the back door, staring daggers at each other. He motioned for me to go through the door first. Then he hurried out after me, shoving me down the back steps. I stumbled. He grabbed my coat and tugged it down, pinning my arms to my sides. Then other Chris proceeded to pummel me. I fell down in the yard. He kicked me several times and left me there struggling to get the coat off. When I finally pulled myself back inside, other Chris was gone, and my mother had left her bedroom in the tractor beam glow of her Sony Trinitron to stomp into the kitchen and yell, What the hell just happened? Chris Anderson beat me up. What did you do to provoke him? What did I do to provoke him? Why would he want to beat you up? Because he's an asshole? Things were different after that. I made sure I was out of the house as often as possible. I avoided other Chris. Occasionally our paths would cross and it would be oddly cordial and deeply unpleasant. Before much longer, he was gone. The subject of other Chris came up a few years ago at Thanksgiving. I don't know who mentioned his name. It might have been me. My sister said, I saw him wandering the streets of Lindenhurst years ago. He did not look good. He's an alcoholic, my brother added. I told the story about him shooting the pigeon and putting it in the freezer. My mother laughed. He was always a pleasure to have around. I was shocked. Do you know that I felt replaced by him? Do you remember he beat the crap out of me? 
My mother stopped laughing and quietly said, I was drinking back then. I don't know if other Chris is alive or dead. I do know that if it ever looks like I'm going to be in a fight, I'll invite my foe to step outside before me, kick him down the steps, and pull his jacket down so he can't move his arms. Then I'll proceed to pummel him senseless. And uh, thanks a lot for coming out. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody you read. And thanks very much to the Red Room. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.